The sermon text for today is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know who, him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Good morning. Thanks, Grace. Uh, as Grace mentioned, we're going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 today. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Now, some of you, as you were maybe reading it this week, getting prepared for your refuge community, or uh, if you're just reading it, you know, as maybe you couldn't make it to refuge community this week, um, and so hopefully you've, you've had a chance to, to glance over this text this morning, and or, uh, or sorry, I meant this week, and as you've done that, uh, hopefully you, you saw kind of very, uh, kind of jumped probably off the page at you in your Bible that the arrangement of these first three verses are different than the arrangement of the other verses, right? So uh, this is a kind of literary style or a clue that John is changing the type of genre. It's an intrusion into his letter. He's stopping and he's pausing for a second to go over something that he thinks is vitally important before he continues the rest of his thought, all right? And so this has been, uh, you know, debated among scholars for many years of why is this thing in here? Is it even original? Does it belong in here? Uh, all of these kinds of things. So let, let me give you what I think my, my take is on this and why I think this is important is I think what John's just come out of, right? He's been talking about, you know, walking in the light and what does it mean to be a Christian for Jesus to be our advocate and all these kind of things. It gives you this new commandment that we just talked about last week that we're to love one another, which is not a new commandment. It's an old one, right? And he, you know, we talked about he, he stole this from Jesus, right? Uh, that Jesus says, you know, in the same thing in John 13, 34 and 35, that, you know, people are going to know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And so as John's going over all of that, he's just come out of this proof time. He's just come out of this testing time for you if you are a Christian to test to see whether or not you're a Christian. And that's, that's a hard thing to deal with, right? And if you've been a Christian for any number of years or even for a small period, you know that the firm foundation, the assurance of your faith is like an ebb and flow, isn't it? Like, I don't always feel like I'm the best Christian in the world. I might not be a Christian at all. I might be in this low valley, and then you kind of come out, and sometimes it's just like, man, I feel like I'm the, like, Jesus is just soaring through my veins right now, you know? And we have these highs and lows. So John, when he's writing this letter, he's an older pastor. He's seasoned. He's gritty. You can just picture him writing this letter with his old white beard, you know, he's pinning this down, he's writing this, trying to encourage some saints that are being attacked. 
That's the context of this letter. His skin, you know, is uh, scarred from being dipped in hot, boiling tar. He was tortured that way, according to church history. You can just picture this guy, seasoned with salt, and he has this little intrusion. Much like when you, have you ever sat down with an old person and they're kind of like, you're sitting, you're talking with them. I mean, so, I mean somebody really old, right? Um, like in a nursing home type thing, right? You sat down and they're talking to you and then they just go into this intrusion in the middle of their thought, right? <laughs> and those are, can be sweet moments where they're giving you real good wisdom, right? And so this is John's pastoral wisdom. It's an intrusion. And what John is essentially saying here, right in these first three verses, is that I know you're facing a lot of challenges. I faced a lot of challenges myself. And I want to give you a firm foundation before we kind of move back into these challenges. And so as I was thinking about all of that context this week, because that's, that's a lot to take in, that there was part of me that's standing like, no, and I'm going to have to stand up here in front of you guys and be like, well, what's, what do I have to say to them? I'm not John. I'm not like this seasoned old pastor with this white beard who's been dipped in hot, boiling tar, tortured for my faith. Who am I to stand up here and talk over this with you guys? Do I have any kind of credibility with you? Do I have any kind of credibility with myself? And so I, I put this in your, your sermon prep form this week to, to kind of write down what are the challenges that you faced in your life. It's down mine. <laughs> I need to remind myself to remind you this is your pastor's accreditation in his faith. I've been a Christian for 34 years. I learned and walked, learned how to walk the Christian faith from a Christian mother who dealt with a husband who had multiple affairs, 14 different women that we know of. I'm the son of divorced parents. I was bullied for being a multi-ethnic child. I had a racist, violent grandfather. I was rejected and never met an entire side of my biological family because my mother married a black man. The pastor I came to know the Lord under was blackmailed by a woman for 25 years because he was having an affair with her. That same woman was my regular VBS director and my Sunday school teacher. I had an older sister who died at age four that I've only known through pictures and stories that were told to me. I've been cheated on. I've cheated on during dating relationships. I've been falsely accused of doing terrible things by close friends and confidants. I've lived with abusive roommates and been in abusive friendships. I've been at times a terrible son, a terrible sibling, a terrible friend, a terrible employee, a terrible boyfriend, and so much more. I've invested in others who've eventually just tossed me to the side. I've struggled with addiction. I've tried to walk away from the faith. I've struggled with Friends who uh, struggled with depression on and off all of my life. 
I've sat with friends who've faced affairs, child abuse, drug and alcohol addictions, abandonment, homelessness. I've sat and walked with foreign Christians who were thrown out of their villages, out of their families, and imprisoned for their faith. I've even visited friends in jail. Why do I say all that? Not to to boast. (laughs) Not to say I'm any. I'm sure we could do countless testimonies up here of many challenges that you've faced. I say all that to say that when when I'm speaking about what I'm speaking about today from the writer of John. When I tell you that these are firm foundations, that these are helpful thoughts from a seasoned pastor, I'm not saying this out of naivety. I wrote down my story to remind myself of what God's brought me through, and I encouraged you to do the same. It's helpful for us to rehearse how has God been faithful to us in the midst of our suffering. So first, let's talk about these first three verses. What well, actually, sorry, forgot my main thought here. <laughs> main thought for today. Main idea that I want you to take home with you. The true Christian knows what God offers we cannot lose. I think that's the thrust of what John is doing here in these six verses. Is that the true Christian knows. Remember, they've got all those proofs. They've got those tests. And so they've come out of that test. They've come out of those proofs knowing what I've got in God I cannot lose. He is a firm foundation. He's not going anywhere. And so now as we move into these first three verses, we have our assuring axioms is what I called these this week. Our assuring axioms. An axiom is just a truth. It's a principle. It's a proverb that you can take with you. So let's read these for a moment again. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, why is it arranged this way? Talked about that a little bit here at the beginning. It's arranged because this is a, a pastoral poem. <laughs> this is a pastoral song, right? I am no fan of musicals, right? I'm not like them. They don't seem realistic to me that people just walk around and break out into song. Um, but this is a biblical musical. <laughs> John has just come out of like testing you, Right? And now he wants to sing over you. (laughs) It's what he's doing here. So it's not an intrusion. It's just, it's it's a song. It's John breaking out into a poem. It's him breaking out into a song to give us these foundational truths, these axioms that will help us to regularly assure ourselves of our faith. And what are these three axioms? Well, they're they're very simple. He's got this easy structure that's there to follow, classic John. He says, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, right? And then I write, I write, I write. Okay? And he writes to these three different groups. Little children, young men, and fathers. 
Now, for all you ladies in the room that think you can kind of mentally check out here, it's not patriarchal, okay? <laughs> this is not male chauvinism. It's just the way that they talked, right, uh, back in the day, that he's talking to the entire group of people, right? These are stages, I believe, of development in the Christian life. A child, an adolescent, and a parent. That's the three images here that he's giving us. And so these are three stages. And so the first is there in verse 12 and also at the end of verse 13. I'm writing to you as little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And then if you skip down to 13, he says, I write to you children because you know the father. What's the connection between these two things, right? Well, if we go back to the first axiom, it's he's writing to the little children because your sins have been forgiven. Now, cannot you not remember that when you first came into the faith, how much that astonished you? How much it amazed you that the God of the universe forgives you? And when you first come into the faith, your sin is heavy. You see it clearly. You know you're a sinner <laughs> desperately in need of God's grace, love, and mercy. And so this axiom he's giving us right here, he says, don't you remember what it was like when you were a spiritual child? And that your sins were forgiven, not for your namesake, not for my namesake, but for his namesake. And then what's the connection there between verse 12 and the end of 13, 13c? Is now that my sins are forgiven, this is the reason I get to intimately know God. That was what was getting in the way of our relationship is my sin. And now that my sin is atoned for, that my sin is paid for, I get God. Right? It's the, it's the book. You don't even have to read it. It's in the title. God is the gospel, is what John Piper wrote. Right? God is the gospel. God is the good news. The good news of the gospel is I get God. That's the childlike faith. Jesus goes over with this us in John 14, 6 through 7. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. If you get Jesus, you get God. You get what he's atoned for. You get what his life means. You get the Father. You get the Holy Spirit. You get the whole package. This is a foundational axiom. This is a foundational truth for the Christian life. And it's not something that we move past. That's not John's point here. Right? Jesus goes over in the Gospels. He says, if you're going to come to me, and I think his implication is if you're going to come to me regularly, you come like a child. Because you're going to see where John ends here. Right? You go down there to, uh, to, to verse uh, you know, 16, pride of life. <laughs> right? That's the phrase. We'll go over that later. 
This is helping us. John's giving us something that's going to help us fight for a, a humble posture before our Heavenly Father on a regular basis. Your sins have been forgiven, not for your name's sake, for his name's sake, and you know him. You know the Father. Second, so we come to God as children, but we're empowered at, as adolescents, right? That's the second group he talks to, getting, or sorry, the 13b. I'm writing to you, young men, because you overcome the evil one. 14b, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you if you've overcome the evil one. Now, notice the, the, the language of the text here. It's got this past tense to it. It's got this present reality to it. You are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome. Certain. Right? Now, if anybody's been a Christian in those adolescent years, you're no longer a, a baby Christian. You've kind of grown up and you're in those teenage years, you know, a little rebellious at times. Think you know it all. Right? It's the, uh, for those in the, the reform camp, that's like, that's like maybe the cage stage Calvinism time, right? Where you kind of come out and you're just like, ah, everybody's got to be a Calvinist. Um, Right? You become this strong-willed person, right? You have to learn. It's the, 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 the fathers. I write to you fathers. They're usually looking back at those people like, oh, my goodness, settle down. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be all right. <laughs> Jesus is still ruling and reigning on his throne, all right, despite what you're doing. But there's this strength that... You don't have when you're a child, right? You don't have when you're maybe a bit older, right? As I'm getting up there, you know, I'm in my almost going to be 40 here pretty soon. You know, and I start playing in an old men's soccer league this year. And, man, I was getting injuries like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> you know, I just don't have the strength that I used to. I, my knee's still hurting. Uh, and it's been months since I've played. But there's this adolescent years, these, you know, teenage, 20, you know, maybe early 30 years. You're still strong, right? You're still Black Mamba. You're still Kobe, you know, like, uh, you know, for those of you who LeBron lovers, sorry, you know, but uh, Kobe's better. Uh, so anyway. But you're strong, right? And why are you strong? You're strong because the word of God abides in you. It's not you're strong in your own strength. It's you're strong in him. Right? It's not that you overcome the evil one. It's you press in. You know how to press into the one who's overcome the evil one. It's the one who's defeated sin, Satan, and death. This is not to say, oh, you are strong. You abide in the word. You have overcome. No, it's Jesus is the fulfillment of this text. And I just keep pressing into him. I keep learning from him. And then he works that in me through his spirit, through his power. So it's a, I've, I've learned how to lean on God. I've learned how to lean on Jesus. I've learned how to lean on the Holy Spirit for my strength. That's why it's so key that the word abides in you. 
third, right? When you come to God as children, we're empowered as adolescents, and third, when you've got all of that, you come to faith, your sins are forgiven, you've got this inner strength in Jesus. Now, what does that inner strength end up resulting in? Our third axiom, writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says again in verse 4. He didn't even change this phrase. (laughs) You know what John's going on here, I think, in John? He's astonished. He's going all the way back to creation. He's going all the way back to the beginning. And he says, the one who was there, I know. I know him. How long has it been, Christian? How long has it been, friend, since you've sat and just said, wow, I know God. Do you understand that there are billions of people out there who do not know God? And you know him. There are people in this room, some of you will never be able to get this. I know my wife and my kids and you don't. I know them. I get the pleasure of that, of knowing them and being known by them. And that's just a morsel (laughs) in this life that I get to know God. I'm known by him and I get to know him. And John's astonished by this. He's amazed. So do we see the kind of Semitic idea here, right? The Hebraic idea that there's these stages of development. Come in as a child. I see God at work in my life where I get to overcome sin, Satan, and death, and the things of this world. And then ah, intimacy. Through all of that, I'm getting closer and closer to God. Man, that's good news. And it's this guy singing over us. Right? It's this old pastor, and he's got his beard, and he's got his pen. I mean, write these, oh, man, this is good. My sins are forgiven. I came to God as a child. Oh, he's helped me to overcome the things of this world, and I know him. These are the things he's pinning down, leaving for people like you and me. Unfortunately, it's not where he stops. As he's come out of this time of singing and worship, rightfully so, he wants us to know that there is a warning. So this is what I would call here in verses 15 through 17, his worldliness warnings. Remember, this is a guy who's seasoned. He's seen a lot. He's been through suffering. He's gritty. He's seen people that come into the faith, that come into the church and go. He's seen his own faith waver at times. 
And so he doesn't want us to just worship, but he also wants to warn us of what's going to rob us of our worship. So let's look at it together again. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desire. And whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now what's John getting at here? I think what this is, is this is a description of someone who is falling away. Who is getting enticed, who is getting entangled with the things of this world. He's giving them a warning. Be careful. There are things that are going to come and they're going to look attractive. They're going to be alluring. They're going to be enticing. They wouldn't be enticing if they weren't good looking. (laughs) If they didn't look like they would add some measure of pleasure and happiness and relief from the suffering of this world in our lives. That's why they're so enticing. And they're enticing because they, they, they look like they come from God. That's why he's using all this specific language that he's using in this text. So first, let me, as you, verse 15 has been greatly misused and abused throughout Christendom, throughout the history of Christianity. And so I want to clarify it a bit, Okay. It says, do not love the world or the things of this world. Okay, now I know that some of you here today, because I've talked to you and as I've got to know you and hear your story, that you came out of this legalistic, fundamentalist background. And this is like their theme phrase here that I just read. Don't get enticed with the things of the world. So let me give you some point of clarification here that if you're a healthy Bible reader, okay, if you speak biblical language, right, you can hear it, you can say it, right, you understand it. You know that there's two words throughout the scripture that describe the world. <laughs> okay, the Bible uses the same word in two ways. One is what the fundamentalist side would emphasize, Right? Sin, things in the world that are going to entice you away from God. Okay? The other is what maybe the more liberal progressive sides would emphasize, which is God has put beauty into the world. And it still has his imprint on it. And these are both true. Right? Just like we talked about last week, you can have these both things be true because it is the third way. It's the, the gospel. It's the Bible that says in and of themselves, they're incomplete. <laughs> but through the word, through the gospel, through the person of Jesus Christ, now we can be like, ah, I see both of them clearly. Light, illumination has come on. And now I know how to properly evaluate them. So it's the same thing applied here. 
We have to ask, which word is John using? Is he using the word that describes just the material world, which is what's happening in Genesis 1? Because John, you know, God comes out, Moses comes out of Genesis 1, right? And sees, and what does God declare about everything in Genesis 1? It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. So I, I don't know if, you know, you got it by the end, but apparently everything God made in the world was good, right? I mean, if he says it that much, and then he says at the very end, it's very good, which is a way in Hebrew of saying it was perfect. I don't know. Might be good, <laughs> right? So an apple is not evil, Okay? Your iPhone is not evil, okay? Now, an apple can be used for evil things. An iPhone can be used for evil things. That's the second part of when the Bible describes the world. It's talking about a system of thought, a mentality, a worldly mentality that views these things apart from God. That's what John's going after. Okay? He's saying, reject the worldly mentality. Reject the world system of thought. And adopt God's. Because then we have illumination. We have light, which has been one of his themes throughout, right? Light means illumination here in 1 John. It means I see the truth. It means I see things clearly. I see things the way God sees them. So he says, do not love the world. He's saying, do not get enticed. Do not get allured by the system of thought that the world has. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or God's perception, God's view of things is not in you. If you just adopt the mentality of the world. So I wanted to go over what worldliness is not was the key there. So now let's go over to verse 16 to see what worldliness is. It comes through a couple of key phrases here. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. I actually like, this is one of the places where I like how the NIV translates this phrase better. Okay? I don't think desires of the flesh does it merit. In the NIV, it says lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. Because what this Greek word is, that the word desire there, it's a, it's a very rigid, correct translation here in the ESV. Okay? It is the word desire. <laughs> but I'm saying it doesn't help us understand it fully because it's more of a lust. It's a, a Greek word that means over-desire. It's not just a normal, average desire, right? Like, I could desire to go get, uh, you know, some Cane's chicken right now. Some of you already are like, yeah, let's go get Cane's after church. <laughs> right? That's probably all you heard today in this sermon, uh, and I'm sorry for that. But um, thankfully, maybe you'll, uh, you'll hear some other things in here, and you'll stop, you know, worrying about the things of this world. So... Oh, yeah, you like that? Um, okay. Uh, right. So it's the lust of the flesh. It's the over-desire of the flesh. It's the person who indulges 
in the things of this world, and they got to have it. It's, I can't live without the new iPhone. I, I mean, you, guys, we can, we can joke and we can laugh about this. There are people who will literally go through a little semi-depression because they don't have the updated iPhone. They're literally downcasting their soul, and they don't know why. Because their flesh has gotten attached to the things of this world. And we can do this with anything. We can do it with the apple. I need an apple to be happy. And we can get so enticed with the over-desire of the things of this world that it it, it affects our inner joy. (laughs) So we have the desire of the flesh, which is the over-desire or the lust of the material world. It's, if I don't get this, I'm not going to be settled in my soul. And it doesn't just stop there. John continues his thought where he says the, the desire of the eyes or the lust of the eyes. Well, what's this? This is not something that I have or it's something I can get, but it's something I want. Right? It's, it's what's got your vision. Where, do, where are your hopes and your dreams? And see, this is how we know that John's not just speaking to, to kind of wealthy people. That can be our temptation here. Sorry, although they're the people that are kind of caught up in the things of the world. No, there are poor people who have a vision for their lives of get the big screen TV, get the fresh Jordan sneakers, right? Got to have some fresh kicks, right? Anything that is say, okay, I can't afford those things, but I really want them. If I can just get out of poverty, if I can just get this much in my bank account, if I can just, if I can just, if I can just. And there's never this contentment in the Lord. It's always in, I got to get the next thing. The next phase of life. That's a, that's a vision. What do you have your sights set on? If you're the Christian, this is the question we should be regularly asking ourselves. Am I still a child or have I moved into adolescence? Am I still in adolescence or have I moved into adulthood? Are you in the same place you were when you first became a Christian? Or have you grown? See, that should be our vision. That should be our gaze. That should be our hopes and our dreams. I want to be more like Christ because that's the end goal, isn't it? That's the goal, friends. That's the vision. Is it the over-desire of the things of this world? And I, once again, let me, let me clarify something here. When I say over-desire, I'm not saying the apple's bad, the phone is bad. Having the 401k is bad. None of those things are bad. It's what you believe about them. Is this the source of your joy, your steadfastness, your, your faithfulness, your happiness, or is it Jesus? And what's the end result of all of that? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride. What does he say there? Right? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. You've met these type of people before. Maybe you've been one of them for a season of your life. 
the person who thinks they got everything figured out. And the reason that they think they've got everything figured out is because they're successful by the world's standards. And they bring that mess into the church. I see, guys, I, I told you, I've been a Christian for 34 years. I've seen it time and time again. This stuff gets nasty and ugly in the church. We take a guy who's really successful in the business world and we make him an elder. Because he's successful, he's clearly flourishing. <laughs> when he may be toxic. For your elder team. He may be toxic for your church. We take another example. We take the old seasoned Christian, person who's been a Christian for a long time, for 50 years. Oh, we make them an elder. They may be still a child 50 years later. You know that? I've had people who come through our church and say, well, you know, we just don't have any old people. I, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we don't. You can go get them, bring them in. You know, maybe you leave, once you go over to the nursing home, lead some to Christ, they might start coming to church. But instead, what they've got in their head is older means better. I'm not saying, I, I look, you spend any season of time, I have respect for my, the, these elderly saints. I love older people. I've been invested in by older saints. I've got lots of mentors. Anybody since times around me, you, you know that. But older does not always mean better, guys. Younger doesn't mean better. Are we adopting the, the, the values of the world or are we adopting the values of God? Are we adopting what God said to the prophet Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Are we putting character over competency? Character's what matters. The heart of a person. I want to know at the end of the day that we've got elders that stand up before people and these people know God. <laughs> They're close to Jesus. Because what I'm hoping, and don't forget this, guys. Before I was an elder or pastor, I was a layperson. <laughs> Majority of my life, I was a layperson. And I wanted to be around elders. I wanted to be around pastors that were close to God, hoping that would just rub off on me. Right? I'm like, I, I, I want to I know God like that guy knows God. I've known mature Christian women. That's been the majority of my story growing up. <laughs> that knew God and taught me how to know God. That's the type of people I want to be around. Not who are consumed with the things of this world. Just because they look good. They look like they've got it all together. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You see, the prideful person ends up looking like this. They're a backbiter. They're irritable. They're touchy. They want to be taken seriously. Why don't anybody listen to me? 
I've done this over here. I'm successful. Why aren't you listening to me? That's what the pride of life is. That's what it looks like when someone's been consumed by the things of this world. It's the Pharisees. One of the best seat at the table. Wanted to stand out in the high places. Wanted to be known. Go over to Proverbs 9 today and read about the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the world. And look at the two descriptions. They both cry out from the rooftops. They're both looking for people who want to learn. <laughs> Which one are you drawing close to? Because <laughs> they both look very similar. A person who's consumed with the things of this world is seeking self-glory and not the glory of God. And what's the result of all this of worldly warnings? Verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world's passing away. You know this existentially to be true. You know this in your very soul. Is there something you were passionate about 10, 15 years ago that you're not passionate about today? Yep. Come on, guys. Not with me. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Is there things 30, 50 years ago that the world knew certainly that we would now look back and be like, that is stupid. I don't know why they did things that way. Yep, 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 yep. You see, the things that we're skeptical about now, 30, 40, 50 years from now, people over here are going to be skeptical about. The things that we laugh about in the past, 30, 40, 50 years from now, people are going to laugh about in the past with us. The way we dress, the way we do our hair, what's in. It's passing away, guys. And with the rise of the internet age, it's happening faster. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, I'm sorry if it's going to make some of you feel bad, but Facebook is already out of date. Did you know that? I used to coach soccer at a high school, and when I made a Facebook page for the group, they said, Coach, nobody uses Facebook anymore. You got to do Instagram. You got to gram it. true. You on Facebook? You old. It's the way it is. Hi, see, things are constantly changing. <laughs> Got Snapchat, right? Yeah, yeah, all sorts of things out there that I don't understand. <clears throat> you know? And I can tell I'm getting old because I just don't care. You're like, oh, coach, you got Snapchat. No, I'm not doing that. No. I, I, I'm gonna, <laughs> what, what was the other one? The other day, is, uh, I, I was telling somebody how I do a lot of my social media on my computer, and they said, what do you use your phone for? I said, a phone. <laughs> I actually call people on it. <gasps> things are passing away, guys. The things of this world are going away. We're all going to be out of date someday. But here's what John tells us. 
Whoever does the will of God abides forever. The stuff Christians believed 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, is the stuff we still believe today. It's the stuff we still fight for. The deity of Christ. The Trinity. Right? There, there's things at the top of our cone of certainty that we're still in agreement upon 2,000 years later. <laughs> that the Bible is the word of God. We've got Christians who fought and died for these things. What are those essentials? What are we clinging to? What are those assurances that we can go back to in the first three verses there? The firm foundations that our sins have been forgiven. We know the Father. We've overcome the world. What will abide forever? As the band makes their their way back up, I want to close with with this kind of idea, this thought. Jesus talks about this, doing the will of God and it abiding forever in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going I'm to, normally I can, I could be a little bit uh, isolated at times, right? I told you I go through that kind of depression. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times people go through depression, they become isolated which means that I'll, I'll work on my faith and I don't care what's going on with the rest of you guys because <laughs> right? I'm depressed. So let me, let me get out of myself here and let me help say, hey, this is an invitation. Right now what I'm doing at this season of my life is I'm regularly trying to study the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus's. There's two things that I'm studying. It's the Sermon on the Mount and the Psalms. And I'm just going back and forth between them. And so the, psalm, the Sermon on the Mount, the Psalms are just regularly kind of coming up in my mind. So my invitation is, join me. Join me. Because here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Store up treasure in heaven where moth rust will not destroy. What's he doing? Same thing, John. There's stuff that won't pass away. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. So what am I trying to seek the kingdom? Store up treasure in heaven. And storing up treasure in heaven does not look like the storing up the treasures here on earth. So I'm hiding these things in my heart so the word of God abides forever in me and I can overcome the things of this world. And as I do that, I'm getting to know God more intimately. Not always chasing the next thing, but just being present. What does it look like to abide with God? That's my invitation to you. Join me. You don't have to do the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to do the Psalms. But pick something and be in it. Soak in it. Be with God. There's a book I've been reading for an entire year. <laughs> I get up every Sunday. I go to a coffee shop. I go, or some of you saw me, I went to Dunkin' Donuts and I read three pages. That's it. Focusing on being. 
slowing down. Can we just enjoy God together, guys? <laughs> Let's just be present with him. The world's always rushing. We've got eternity. <laughs> What's the hurry? What are we in such a hurry for? Let's slow down. Be present with God. Let me pray for us. Father, the reason that we can slow down, the reason that we can be present and just enjoy you is because we are certain that we have you and we will not lose you. And we have to start asking ourselves that when we feel that rushness <laughs> to go out and get all these things done, are we, is that because you've called us to do that? Or is that we're going out to trying to be successful and trying to, to win at these standards that we've built up in our head? There's a time to be zealous. There's a time to go out and to do something quickly to strike while the iron's hot. And then there's a time to slow down. I'm reminded of the life of your son who regularly, who was very successful in ministry, is the embodiment of success, but would always take time away to spend intimate time with you. Before he goes to the cross, he's intimately praying in the garden by himself, saying, not my will, but your will be done. How long has it been, Father, since we've sat down and we just got on our knees beside our bed and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. How long has it been since we, before we rewrote that check, said, not your will, but my will, or not my will, but your will be done. Father, because we know that according to John, that whoever does your will abides forever. Help us to know what your will is and to do it. And not to do it in our own strength, but as the word of God abides in us, as the gospel abides in us, as the Holy Spirit empowers us to go. We press into him. In the name who is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. That's the name in which I pray.